everybody. Uh, just in case this is a distraction, I've just got a, a minor surgical wound on my hand, so that's why that's there. Well, um, uh, this, this, this afternoon, sorry, <clears throat> that's what it says here, uh, this morning, uh, we begin a new series of sermons, uh, and this series is going to be a topical one. Uh, I've picked a topic, in other words, a topic to talk about, and we're going to think about a topic that I've referred to in the past in various places, an idea that, for want of a better word, I'm calling the five scales of discipleship. Uh, by scale, I mean kind of like size or magnitude uh, or level, uh, not small, hard, flat thing you find on a lizard or um, fish. Uh, and so by five scales of discipleship, I'm referring to five practices or disciplines that differ by way of scale or uh, magnitude uh, or size of operation. And they are, <clears throat> firstly, meeting with God alone in prayer. Secondly, uh, prayer, um, prayer friendships, spiritual friendships, prayer partnerships and triplets. Thirdly, home groups and Bible studies. Fourthly, uh, Sunday, church, weekend church. And fifth, engaging with the wider church, citywide church, national church, global church. Uh, they're all very important. In a way, none of them are optional. We all tend to do some well and others less well. So for today, uh, scale one, all by myself. Key idea Every Christian spending time alone with God in prayer. And this morning we'll be looking at the, the why and then the how. Why spend time alone with God and how to do that exactly. So then, firstly to the why. Why spend time alone with God? Well, I've picked five reasons. Uh, it's what Jesus did. It's what Jesus teaches us to do. It's what we were made for. It's what satisfies. It's a reorientation, a recalibration, a refocusing, a re-energization, if that's a word. So then, reason one, it's what Jesus did. All four Gospels uh, record Jesus withdrawing from the crowds and from his disciples in order to find solitude. Solitude in the wilderness, a lonely place where he could be by himself in order to pray to his father. A typical reference to this practice can be found in the first chapter of Mark's gospel. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, ah, Let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Or from uh, Luke chapter 6. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. 
and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Uh, For many of us, um, reason one, uh, it's what Jesus did, is all the reason we need. Like, that's it. For others, the connection between the practices of Jesus of Nazareth in first century Palestine and us in Perth in the 21st century might not be so obvious. So then, here's the connection. As Christians, we are followers of Jesus, which means that we learn from both his speech and from his behavioral example. As followers, we are imitators, copiers, in other words. Copying Jesus, that's what it's all about, especially with respect to his character traits, but also even in his activities and works. We want to be like Jesus, for he is the truly human being, the truly human one. We believe as Christians that he shows us what it means to be truly human, and By that, and this is really the key point, in showing us what it means to be truly human, he is also showing us exactly and perfectly who God is, what God is like, the God in whose image and likeness we are created. So reason one, Jesus did it, therefore we should frequently spend time alone with God in prayer. Reason two, It's what Jesus teaches us to do. We've uh, already uh, heard him uh, do so, teach us precisely that in our reading this morning. Um, Julie read to us Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret... Will reward you. In the passage, two contrasts are drawn and one similarity. The similarity um, when we pray, we forgive because we also have been forgiven. Uh, There's a contrast to the pagans who believe that gods have to be uh, coaxed and coerced, usually against their will, because of their laziness and indifference. But we know that our God is not either lazy nor indifferent, but rather an interested, loving, all-knowing Father. And another contrast. In contrast to those who pray in order to be seen by others, personal prayer, in a sense, can and ought to be private prayer. In teaching that there is a right and proper need for secrecy, his word, when it comes to personal prayer, I don't think Jesus is simply providing an antidote to the temptation of public pious boastfulness in prayer. No, I think he is reconfiguring his disciples' understanding of what prayer is. Personal prayer 
requires privacy because it is intimate. An uncovering and unfolding of everything laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Personal prayer requires privacy because it is intimate. Intimacy usually requires privacy. From trying on clothes at Maya to any number of other situations, things that might be intimate need privacy. And the parents uh, among us might uh, remember situations where they have had to correct, that is to teach their children, saying, that's not something we do in public. Something similar is going on here. The prayer that Jesus is talking about is scripturally a pouring out of one's heart before God, an open sharing before God of our needs and neediness, of our frustrations and fears of our angers and our desires, both for ourselves and for others. We are naked in the presence of our Creator, uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Full disclosure, utter intimacy, nothing hidden. Why? Because it's what we were made for. Reason three, it's what we were made for. Uh, In uh, Genesis 2, we read about The Lord God making the Adam, the first human being, forming him from the dust of the ground and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Um, I tend to call Adam the Adam, um, not only because that's how names are commonly presented in Hebrew, but also because the individual, Adam, in many ways in Scripture, stands as common representative for all humanity, male and female, the Adam. Uh, we read about the Lord God taking the Adam and putting him in the Garden of Eden, instructing him about trees. And also about the Lord God, we read about the Lord God bringing to the Adam every other creature, the wild animals for for wild places, the the other animals for husbandry and farms, the the birds of the sky. Uh, He brought them in order that he might see what names the Adam might give them all, and also in order. Um, uh, um, that, um, uh, he might, that the Adam might indeed give them names. And to be sure, we, along the way we read, Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the Adam to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So to be sure, human beings are made for other human beings, for family, as well as being made for God. And in answer to that, the Adam will be split into male and female, man and woman, ish and isha, as it is in Hebrew, husband and wife. But we should note that, firstly, it was the Lord who noticed that there was a deficiency. It is not good for the Adam to be alone. Not not the Adam himself. Secondly, we should note that the Adam was alone, not lonely. The Lord was with him. Um, And thirdly, there was a delay, a substantial delay, quite a delay, between the identification of the need and the provision of an answer. They did a lot of stuff in that time, got a lot done. The Adam and the Lord, naked in the presence of his creator. Uh, To be sure, we are 
made for each other, but we're made for God first. And their hearts cannot be but hungry until we've met and eaten our full of God. And that brings us to reason four. Reason four, it's what satisfies. Uh, David, the Bible's chief poet and songwriter, God's lover and friend, puts it best when he puts it poetically. Answer me when I call, O my righteous God. My heart with the joy that only you can give, the joy they mistakenly seek from their roasted grain and new wine. Psalm 4. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for the living God, for God. When can I go and meet with God? Psalm 42. You, O God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Psalm 63. Now, um, possibly at the risk of sounding patronizing, I'd like to make a point that is actually quite obvious, but it's incredibly important uh, that we understand it. And that point is this. Prayer is not usually all that pleasurable. When it's time to pray... Uh, there will always, uh, always uh, be something more pleasurable to do. Or perhaps from another perspective or another, there will always be something more profitable to do. Nor am I saying that prayer is the only thing that is satisfying. A good meal, an engaging day's work, an exciting gathering with friends, a creative and productive achievement. Wildlife photography, of course. All of these things genuinely and intensely satisfying. But prayer is about something else. It's not about the pleasure of or the satisfaction of our physical appetites or psychological needs. Such things, after all, can be deceptive and deceitful, leading us in a direction where we feel less and less satisfied, more and more dissatisfied. And sometimes... Uh, this, the, 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 the satisfaction, the, the, the effort involved in the satisfaction of such things leads us into rank sin, where the satisfaction of our physical appetites or psychological needs becomes our God, the focus of our lives, the altar upon which we sacrifice ourselves and our loved ones. Prayer is about something else. It's actually about our deepest need, which is a spiritual need to have the attention of our creator-maker, our father, his exclusive attention. Remember when uh, you were very young and uh, you'd draw a really nice picture um, with the sun in the corner, or um, maybe you mastered the big kid's bike and it was time to take the training wheels off. And that was exciting and good, but what you needed was an audience. What you needed was, was your mother's attention and your father's approval. Um, we, we needed to show them, look, mum, no hands. <laughs> we, we needed to be seen and acknowledged. By the blood of Christ, we can enter with confidence the most holy place, confident of our Father's attention, approval, and acceptance. And also in the expectation that we will indeed experience in prayer that attention, that approval, that acceptance that we need, uh, that we will hear his voice. Uh, so then, reason five, prayer keeps us 
oriented, focused, the right way up. Uh, Psalm 73 uh, was for many years my uh, favorite psalm. Uh, It's a prayer, and it's a prayer about prayer. Um, It's also about a man who loves God, but notices that those who have dispensed with God altogether are doing rather well at life. In fact, much better than him. Uh, All their physical appetites and psychological needs are being met rather well, in fact. They are healthy and strong, prosperous and carefree. Their arrogance and boasting probably included descriptions of their sexual prowess and and conquests, as well as their success on the trading floor. Asaph, the psalmist, gets lost in envy and in self-pity. Keeping God's rules has been a self-evident waste of time, he thinks. Keeping his heart pure, pure stupidity. His lot in life, trouble, hardship, affliction. Fresh every morning. His mind, grief. His spirit, bitter. His bearing, brutish and animal-like, a dumb beast. Trying to think it through just made it worse. He got more and more discontent, more and more troubled. His doubts about faith in God got to the point where he said to himself, I can't even say these things out loud. I'd cripple other Christians if I did. It was too much for him. Until he prayed. When he entered the presence of God, he understood. God is the reality. All that other stuff is fantasy. And it, it's quickly it's quickly blown away. Ignoring God is fantasy. I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. That deep experience of the satisfaction of knowing Jesus, of being known by Jesus, of of knowing his love and his wisdom, that experience doesn't belong to the regular churchgoer. Although, of course, regular churchgoing is essential, nor does it belong to the avid Bible study participant, although that's needed too. And we'll get there. No, it belongs to the one who first and foremost spends time alone with God. It belongs to the one who satisfies his or her need for intimacy first and foremost through time alone with God. Although, of course, we need each other too. It it belongs to the one who keeps all their other relationships right by focusing on the Lord first. You may have noticed in those earlier gospel readings that when Jesus spent time praying, he knew what to do. He knew when it was time to stay, and he knew when it was time to leave, and he knew why he was going to where he was going. He knew who to make an apostle and why. He knew his Father's will when he spent time seeking it in prayer alone. 
The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's what happens when we pray. Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Um, I'm going to quote from chapter 14, verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together? Each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. What that tells me is that the Corinthian Christians were spending a lot of time alone with God that they had a lot to share, prophecy, songs, revelations, insights, teachings. They had a lot to share when they did come together because they'd each been in the presence of the Lord, alone. That's where that stuff comes from. Why spend time alone with God? It's, it's what Jesus did. It's what Jesus tells us to do. It's what we were made for. It's what satisfies It's what keeps our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's why. Now, with respect to how, how to spend time alone with God, four points I'm going to make uh, briefly. Each of them obviously could be a sermon in themselves, but essentially just some practical aspects of spending time alone with God in prayer. And when it comes to praxis, when it comes to things practical, actually the first thing we need to do is uh, to acknowledge the presence of sin. Uh, we're on the, the next slide, Steve. That, thank, thanks, thanks, brother. That's great. Uh, from a practical perspective, nothing more practical than acknowledging the presence of sin. Um, I've spoken on Genesis 2 this morning. The very next chapter it may surprise you. The very next chapter is chapter 3. And um, uh, human sin enters the world. Having disobeyed God and broken his commandment, uh, Adam and Eve were ashamed of themselves and began to cover up literally and figuratively. Um, Literally, they felt how dangerous it was to be naked in front of each other. Uh, Vulnerability is scary. Um, Figuratively, they blamed each other and tried to deflect God's piercing view. They hid themselves from each other and from God, hiding from the Lord God who had to go and call for them in order to find them. Although we have been rescued from sin and from its power by the blood of Jesus, who died for us, so that we never need to cover up before God, before whom we are forgiven, blameless, free of all accusation, Although we have been rescued from sin by the blood of Christ, we still feel its pull and we struggle with temptation. And perhaps the most powerful temptation we'll ever have to deal with is the temptation not to pray. So then, we need to watch ourselves. Prayer is always inconvenient. There will always be something more pressing, more urgent, more pleasurable, or seemingly more profitable. But once we are aware of that temptation, we can answer it. Yes, 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 that's true, but, but first I, I need to be with, with the Father. Next thing, uh, when to pray. Well, human beings tend to be creatures of habit, so if we can make it our habit, a daily habit, then that's a tremendously powerful and constructive thing to do. It's a healthy thing to do, obviously. For some, it might be first thing in the morning. For others, last thing at night. And for many, in the middle of the night. But it could also be in the middle of the day. The Psalms give us prayers for nighttime before sleep. Psalm 4. 
prayers for the morning when we're waking up, Psalm 5. The Bible encourages us to pray continually at any time, at all times. But whether one prays regularly or irregularly, we need to make it frequently. Thirdly, how to pray. Excellent, excellent question. Two opposite truths need to be acknowledged. First, prayer, uh, like swimming and breastfeeding for the newborn infant, come instinctively to human beings. Um, are you a human being? You can pray. Just dive on in. But just like uh, breastfeeding and swimming, God-given instincts need to be positively reinforced early, and we need the input of competent examples to imitate. Otherwise, we might feel like we're drowning. It is therefore a demonstration of the disciples' insight and maturity, not immaturity, that they ask for help, saying, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John the Baptist taught his disciples. Jesus responds by teaching them the Lord's Prayer and the parable of the incredibly inappropriate friend. He teaches them that to encourage them to pray. We live in a society that associates spontaneity with authenticity. Uh, we, we, we find it hard, therefore, to imagine that Jesus would really encourage his disciples to learn and pray rote prayers, such as the Our Father, as a way of authentically pouring out their hearts to God. But the ancients knew better. For, for 3,000 years, Christians and Jews together have known that human beings do need to learn how to pray and that the Psalms are the schoolroom of prayer. So then, how to pray? Pray the Lord's Prayer. Read and pray the Psalms, committing them to memory, taking them as your own, pouring out your heart to the Lord. Fourth question, and another question I do occasionally get, um, how do I hear God's voice? That's not a simple question to answer quickly. But the following things can be affirmed. Everybody hears God's voice. It's discerning what is and isn't God's voice. That's the tricky bit. Everyone hears Satan's voice. And most human beings are well practiced in believing what he says and obeying what he teaches. In addition to those voices, we have our own thoughts, which are our own voices in our own head. But in the Bible, everyone who speaks to God in prayer speaks in expectation of an answer. You can and you do hear God's voice. Part of growing as a Christian is learning to discern his voice and respond, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. But the two questions, how do I pray and how do I hear God's voice, happily actually bring us to the same place, which is Scripture. A daily habit of alone time with God does not have to be a daily habit of devotional Bible reading, but for most Christians who can read and write and who can afford to own their own Bible, it is good to merge those two habits into one. Reading the Bible is a fast track to hearing God speak to us directly and personally for all of the Bible is God's word. 
In summary, the foundational act of discipleship is meeting with God alone in prayer. When we ignore it, all other things start to fall apart. When we indulge it, all other things start to sort themselves out. Psalm 27. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Amen and amen, and the Lord be with you all.